And this is why we um, talked about Syria being a conflict that really ties together both the past decade's sort of biggest problems, you know, terrorism, with the sort of up and coming uh, uh, problems like great power competition. Syria has been a, a theater for Russia to frankly just demonstrate its military hardware. And so you've seen the Russians demonstrate systems in Syria that they then try to then sort of sell to potential customers. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI. And for this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi spoke to Michael Singh. He has served as co-chair of the Syria Study Group, which was formed at the direction of Congress to examine the war in Syria and how that conflict affects U.S. interests in the region and beyond. The group presented their final report to Congress last month in late September. U.S. policy surrounding the war in Syria has been pretty dynamic since 2011. Questions of whether U.S. support should be lent to opposition groups, and if so, which ones, whether that support should include lethal aid, and whether we should have U.S. forces in the country, these have all proven pretty difficult decisions to make and to stick to. But as Singh argues, decisions like those are best made within a framework that clearly understands U.S. interests and objectives and defines a policy based on those. Especially right now, this is a fascinating and really important conversation. Before we get to it, as always, just a couple quick notes. First, if you are new to the MWI podcast, make sure you find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we would love it if you could please take just a second and give us a rating or leave a review. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and Michael Singh. All right, well, Mr. Singh, sir, thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk to us today about the Syria Study Group report. Uh, I want to lead off with a basic question just about the genesis of this report. Um, this was a congressionally mandated report, I understand. Um, can you kind of talk me through what your mandate was and why Congress felt the need to, to create this report? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the program. Uh, it's really a pleasure to join you. Um, yes, it was a congressionally mandated group, and the members of the Syria Study Group were appointed by the leadership of Congress. Um, I was the Republican co-chair. I had a Democratic co-chair. Uh, there were six Democrats, six Republicans, uh, all appointed uh, by Congress. And the mandate we were given was to really do two things. One was to provide an assessment, an independent assessment, of the situation in Syria. And the second was to provide policy recommendations to the U.S. government both to Congress and to the executive branch. And I think you know, this was a couple of years in the making on the Hill uh, and finally passed in late 2018. And I think basically the genesis of it was, you know, in many ways, like Iraq, uh, and of course there was the Iraq study group in the last decade, this was a conflict that was seen as very complex, bringing in a lot of different U.S. interests, bringing in a lot of different external actors as well as local actors, and I think Congress felt a desire just to have an independent group kind of take a second look uh, at what was at stake and what was the United States doing there. So as the, the study group convenes, what's sort of the timeline to conduct the research and generate the report for, for Congress? So the study group was created by Congress, was uh, sort of legislated into being, as it were, in late 2018, and then the members were appointed. That process took uh, a few months. So we really started our work in March of 2019, 
and we released our report in September of 2019. So about a six-month process overall. And over the course of those six months, we met several times. Um, we received briefings from U.S. government officials, from foreign officials, from people at NGOs, uh, from Syrian American activists, really the whole gamut of stakeholders in this conflict. And we traveled to the region uh, to hear directly from allied governments, places like Israel and Jordan and Turkey, mm -hmm. uh, about their perspective and also, frankly, to visit uh, some of the refugee camps and other types of facilities to get a, a really firsthand look at what was going on. So in the six months that you have to research and do those trips and talk to foreign governments and, and try and understand the situation, how did, how did the study group understand a framework to try and build their understanding of this problem around? Syria is obviously an extremely complex uh, conflict with a lot of different actors, both internal to Syria and external. Um, so how did the study group conceptualize a, a framework to attack this problem? Well, you're absolutely right. It is incredibly complex. And I think that's one of the things which may be less well appreciated amongst the general public, just how complicated a, a conflict this uh, is. You know, you often hear it referred to as a civil war. It's not really a civil war when it comes down to it. It started as a peaceful uprising of Syrians against an autocratic government, but since has drawn in Russia, Turkey, Iran, the United States, uh, has big impact on Iraq, uh, as well as lots of non-state actors like Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, and so forth. Uh, so tremendously complicated. We decided to start really by asking the question of, well, why, why does Syria matter to the United States? Why should Americans care about this conflict? Because one tendency that we've seen from really the outset uh, of the conflict is for Americans to say, well, maybe we shouldn't care mm -hmm. about this conflict. Maybe the right strategy is to just try to cauterize it, as it were. The, the Obama administration used that term. Or to try to hold it at arm's length so that it doesn't impact us over here. Um, but, you know, that, that never proved possible. Still today isn't possible. And so we started, as you'll see in kind of the first section of the report, with this question of why does it matter, and we break that down from there. Yeah, so you identify in the, the why we should care section five main elements or threats. Can you, can you elaborate on what each of those are? Sure. So um, if you look at this question of why should we care, I think it starts with terrorism. Because the reason the United States uh, intervened in the first place in Syria was to respond to the rise of ISIS. Um, ISIS in 2015 killed in very brutal and, and public fashion some Americans. Um, and that was really what prompted uh, the initial intervention in Syria. Um, and so defeating ISIS, uh, taking away the territory that it controlled, taking away its financial and other resources, its support, and stopping it from metastasizing around the world in the way that it had been doing, was really job number one. Mm -hmm. um, but that wasn't the only terrorist threat emanating from Syria. You also have, uh, for example, in Idlib, um, this kind of wild west of terrorist groups which have by virtue of the total breakdown of authority there in Idlib, been able to thrive um, and make that their base of operations. And the U.S. government fears that you have some external plotting, in mm -hmm. other words, plotting outside of Syria going on there in Idlib. So, so terrorism, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and related groups was number one. Um, number two, we would say, um, was Iran. And of course, Iran is uh, something that we worry about a lot in the Middle East, the projection of Iranian influence to places like Iraq, Lebanon, uh, Yemen, um, and Syria was a major theater for the Iranians, is a major theater for the Iranians, to try to 
push their power forward, project their power forward in a way which is very threatening to American allies like Israel, Jordan, uh, and so forth. Um, another reason we should care about uh, Syria has been this question of Russia uh, mm-hmm. and its involvement. And this is why we um, talked about Syria being a conflict that really ties together both kind of the sort of past decades sort of biggest problems, you know, terrorism, the, the so-called global war on terrorism, with the sort of up-and-coming uh, uh, problems like great power competition. You have them uh, both joined together in this conflict because Russia intervened in Syria in 2015 with an eye in part towards frustrating the United States um, and limiting our ability Mm -hmm. to accomplish our goals. Um, There are other problems that we identified as well in terms of concerns uh, for the United States and why it matters. And that included things like, for example, this breakdown of norms. Mm It's funny to talk about norms in the in the sort of context of war, but they're they're very important. And so we've seen, for example, in Syria, the widespread use of chemical weapons. Even if you didn't care about what was happening in Syria otherwise, you should care about chemical weapons becoming a sort of normal weapon of war uh, because it's a sort of uh, it flies in the face of a taboo that has existed at least since, since World War II mm-hmm. and that we have tried to enforce. And it's telling, I think that both President Obama and President Trump considered, and only President Trump ultimately used, force basically to back up this taboo on chemical weapons. I would say, though, that actually the sort of the way that Syria and the way that the conflict has been pursued there has shattered those norms has gone well beyond the use of chemical weapons because you've seen civilians targeted in very sort of deliberate ways. You've seen schools targeted, hospitals targeted. You've seen the information the UN has been giving to the Assad regime and to Russia um, used actually as targeting information uh, against civilians. Uh, and of course, that's very alarming. Um, the, the, the final sort of piece of this, I think, is really this question of the humanitarian situation, refugees, uh, and so forth. Um, Syria has produced waves upon waves of refugees which have put a tremendous burden on the economies uh, of neighboring countries in the Middle East, economies that already were doing pretty poorly, frankly, in many cases before this conflict, Mm -hmm. uh, and also have changed European politics uh, in a pretty substantial way, um, helping pave the way, for example, the rise of the far right. Um, And so what we tried to show in laying all this out was this is a conflict which, A, Americans should care about because it affects our interests, even if it seems very far away, um, and B, that that concern is not abating, but in fact this remains what uh, we call it a dynamic and dangerous conflict. Um, I think a lot of people are hoping that, well, this war is winding down. You know, it's sort of the, the fighting is ending. Events of the last few days certainly show that it's not ending. It maybe is entering a new phase, mm-hmm. maybe a more dangerous phase. Yeah, so obviously there's a lot there, and, and we could talk for hours and hours about each of those individual elements. But I think it's it's interesting what you talked about in terms of sort of a combination of the the threats that we've been focused on for the past 20 or so years, sort of that terrorist, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency threat, combined or overlaid with that sort of great power struggle that we feel like we're, we, in, at least in the Army, feel like we're moving more towards. Um, so I think an easy way maybe to touch on both of those is to sort of talk Iran as a, a bit of a test case, mm. as both a supporter of terrorism, a supporter of the Assad regime, and sort of a, a burgeoning 
Middle Eastern hegemonic power potentially. Um, can you sort of talk in a little bit more specific about Iran's influence in Syria and how that can be sort of extrapolated out to the larger problem that we face as the United States in the Middle East? Sure. Um, Iran is um, a state which uh, obviously we've been, we found ourselves in conflict with uh, really since 1979 and since the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Um, but Iran is a kind of a strange kind of state because it's a state which really lacks uh, a significant conventional power. And part of that is due to the fact that they have found themselves isolated and sanctioned and so forth. Part of it is a function of their own domestic politics where those kind of uh, conventional military institutions like the army and the navy and the air force and so forth um, were very much associated with the United States under the Shah and they were associated with the Shah himself. And so they were replaced by these so-called revolutionary institutions like the, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or IRGC. Um, and instead of conventional power you see Iran employing asymmetric power, um, proxies, terrorism, uh, and other forms of, of asymmetric power, uh, missile force as well, uh, and the proliferation of those missiles. Um, and what we have seen Iran doing uh, around the region, especially in recent years, is trying to use these asymmetric tactics, asymmetric strategies, to project power. Um, to project power in a way which undermines the sovereignty of states, um, which destabilizes regions, often regions which are close to adversaries like Saudi Arabia or Israel, to try to keep those adversaries feeling insecure. And so you see, for example, Iran intervening in Lebanon and creating this proxy Hezbollah, not really primarily focused on Lebanon itself, but as a means of threatening Israel. Uh, in Yemen, you see the Iranians intervening in a lighter way than in Lebanon, but still a very significant way, again, to sort of keep the Saudis focused southward and to keep the Saudis feeling insecure mm -hmm. uh, as a way of keeping these adversaries sort of uh, focused on anything but Iran itself uh, is, is, I think, the strategy there. So Syria has, again, provided Iran with an opportunity to further project this power. And what we've seen Iran do, really since the outset of the conflict in Syria in 2011, is send not primarily its own troops. There have been some Iranian forces in Syria, but to deploy these proxies to Syria, and in some cases to create new proxies mm -hmm. in Syria. So you have a very heavy presence in Syria, for example, by Hezbollah, which has sort of turned into, uh, for Iran, a kind of expeditionary non-state force. Uh, you've seen Afghan and Pakistani um, militias, um, or really, I should say, Afghans and Pakistanis sent to Syria and then constituted into militias, uh, and then in some cases sent back home um, to do the fighting for Iran. In some cases, Iranians have paid and recruited Syrians themselves to act as agents for Iran. Um, at the same time, Iran has tried to emplace uh, weapon systems, missiles and so forth, in Syria, but has largely been thwarted in doing that by Israeli airstrikes, um, which is kind of another interesting uh, and uh, alarming aspect of this, uh, of this war. Um, but the Iranians have gone well beyond just the military sphere. We've also seen the Iranians trying to embed themselves in the economy, in the politics, and even in the sort of social fabric of Syria. And this is very much in sort of keeping with this sort of asymmetric playbook that they follow. Um, you know, why, why should we care? We care primarily because Iran threatens American interests, but Iran also very much threatens American allies uh, in the region. I think we should also see it in a way as uh, a sort of model for how states um, and terrorists and proxies and these sort of non-state militias 
come together and could come together in the future. Because mm -hmm. when we find ourselves fighting Iran, oftentimes we're not really fighting Iran itself. Um, we're fighting Iran's proxies. We're fighting in places far away from Iran. Um, and the challenge that always faces American policymakers is, you know, are we, con are we content to sort of fight Iran in the places where Iran chooses to fight, or do we want to take the fight to Iran? My guess is that this will be a question not just with respect to Iran, but with other sort of states that will face, other great powers even, that will face in the future. You know, contesting or challenging great powers is probably not going to mean war with those great powers. It'll mean competition with those great powers mm -hmm. in other areas of the world. Yeah, yeah I, it was fascinating as I read through the report, the discussion about some of the soft power things that Iran is doing, whether it's purchasing land around Damascus or setting up schools in sort of impoverished areas or just teaching Farsi, um, that that was part of this sort of core proxy and projection strategy um, that they've undertaken. So I think it's the the next step up from Iran in terms of, uh, you know, influence in the area and, and potential efforts at hegemony or at least influence is, is Russia, obviously. Um, and I think there's a bit of a mirror image, and correct me if, if you think differently, but a bit of a mirror image between what we do in supporting certain proxies as with what the Russians have done in, in Syria, um, which seems both to be a tactical play by the Russians to sort of experiment a little bit as well as a strategic play by the Russians. What What's your thought based on your findings in the report of what Russia's sort of overall intent is in Syria? So I, I think you can point to a few different objectives that Russia has had in Syria, and they're obviously intersecting and overlapping. Um, one was, very simply, to preserve the regime of Bashar al-Assad in Syria, because this was perhaps the last bastion of Russian influence in the Middle East, really the last significant Russian client in the Middle East. And in 2015, when they intervened, he was very much in danger of uh, losing his grip on power. And so their intervention arguably saved Assad and his regime, and therefore demonstrated for everyone to see that Russia was committed to this client and maybe by extension other clients um, around the region. Uh, and what we have seen is that that has boosted, um, unfortunately, Russian prestige around the Middle East because other states, you know, especially uh, authoritarian states, look at that and they say, well, you know, maybe that's a sign that Russia can be counted on and or that Russia intends to be a serious player in the region. And so you've suddenly seen a lot more leaders taking visits to Moscow. You've seen a lot more countries trying to expand their relations with Russia, um, probably in part as a hedging strategy because they think Russia has now decided to be a more serious player in the region. Second, I think the Russians very simply were trying to thwart American objectives. Um, you know, the, the Russians have made no secret of the fact that they believe the United States has tried to change regimes around the world. Uh, in some cases, of course, the United States has tried to do that, in Iraq and so forth. In other places, the Russians have imagined uh, we've tried to do it, um, or have seen an American hand where one doesn't exist. Um, and so apparently they decided to try to draw the line in, in Syria um, and to thwart American objectives and to knock us down a peg by intervening uh, in a way which would make it impossible for us to do what we had set out to do. And then third, I think, you know, in a very cynical way, Syria has been a, a theater for Russia to frankly, just demonstrate its military hardware and demonstrate its military prowess. And so you've seen the Russians demonstrate systems in Syria that they then try to then sort of sell to potential customers using the performance of the systems in Syria uh, as sort of a marketing uh, tactic. 
which again is about as cynical as it comes, but has again been somewhat effective for Russia around the world. The last one of the the five that I really want to dig into, and I think it's important to to really delve into it a little bit, is the humanitarian component that you talked about. And I think it's important to dig into because we as military professionals tend not to think of something like refugees as potentially the tactical operation or strategic thing that maybe arguably has had sort of the largest impact on the world at large. You mentioned when you were talking about it before, the influence that it's had on European politics, right? That's a large strategic impact that millions of refugees has that is not directly necessarily a, a military uh, cause or effect. Um, so I'm curious, what else do you see based on this report in terms of how the humanitarian crisis in, in Syria has impacted the area and the world at large uh, based on the millions of people that have had to flee? I mean, I, I, to me, it's impossible to overstate the, the impact that the humanitarian crisis in Syria will have. Um, we talked already about the exodus of refugees and the impact that that's already had in many places in the region and around the world. Uh, most of those refugees, frankly, are, are not going to go home. You see this with refugee crises in history that, you know, once they have been displaced from their homes, it's very difficult, even for those who want to go home, which I think is most of them, uh, to actually ever make it home because the situation on the ground in Syria, obviously, is simply not conducive. And the regime in Syria has used demographic engineering uh, to try to consolidate its control of the areas it's retaken. It doesn't necessarily always want those people uh, to come back. Um, but, you know, you see other impacts of this humanitarian crisis beyond just the refugee issue. Um, you see a generation of Syrian children um, who are growing up uh, often displaced, often in poverty, sometimes under the thumb of groups like ISIS or, or being terrorized by a regime like Syria's. That, to me, is a problem which is going to have a very long-lasting impact on this region, a very long-lasting impact potentially on the United States. I mean, you have a, a probably tens of thousands of children, for example, in northeastern Syria, um, who have grown up um, exposed to this sort of radical, violent ideology of ISIS. Um, and frankly, our, our ability to uh, conduct sort of de-radicalization programs to help those children sort of live normal lives uh, in the wake of that is, is quite limited. We're still struggling to figure out how to do that sort of thing. Um, and it's a daunting task, even if we did know how to do it. And I think the third element here, which needs to be borne in mind, and something which came out very clearly to us in all of our meetings, especially with Syrians, um, was, you know, we tend to think about these issues in strategic terms, you know, kind of, you know, let's, in terms of combating terrorism, um, sort of countering the, uh, what Iran is doing or what Russia is doing and so forth. For Syrians, this is all very personal, obviously. I mean, so many Syrians, almost every Syrian, have had a member of their family who's disappeared, who's been tortured, who's been killed. And for them, the most important issues uh, are not these geopolitical issues we talk about, but it's accountability, it's justice. Um, and that has to be something we account for in our policy. Even if we got everything we wanted in our policy, it might not be good enough for Syrians. And without sort of Syrian buy-in, you're not going to have a solution to this conflict. And so... You know, it's easy to say, let's, well, you know, the humanitarian stuff, let's just dismiss that. That's, you know, we're only about hard geopolitics. Um, that's just not the way the real world works, unfortunately. So given these sort of five key elements and, and all the work that you did over, over the six months to generate this report, the report comes out 29 September, 
I think. Um, and there are pages and pages of recommendations within the report as to what we should do in terms of each of those elements. Um, given the, the last few days uh, and some of the policy shifts that have been uh, put out by the president, what is your reaction based on the recommendations in the report and what we're starting to see happen uh, since we have pulled troops out of northern Syria? Well, you know, in my view, the president's decision to withdraw troops from northeastern Syria or even to move troops around, um, if that's in fact what we're doing, uh, is, is an unfortunate decision that's going to have broader ramifications. Um, and that's something that I think needs to be understood. You know, one can understand um, at some level the president's frustration with this kind of, you know, enmity between the Turks and the Kurds. It may seem like, well, this isn't really our fight. Why are we sort of interposed between these two forces? Why are we taking this risk? Until you understand that Again, all the different parts of the Syrian conflict tend to fit together. And if you take one piece out, um, it has uh, reverberations beyond that. Um, ideally, what you'd want, the way you'd want this sort of decision to be made is you'd, you'd want to be clear with the president to say, well, you know, Mr. President, if you want to change this one thing, that's going to necessitate, necessitate rather a new strategy, and it's going to require us to change these six other things mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I'm afraid that um, that's all now going to happen on the fly rather than in a sort of, um, sort of well-considered way. What I worry about is this. The Turks will make their invasion that's happening now. That will draw the Kurds to send their forces north. That means taking those forces potentially away from things like guarding prison camps where you have tens of thousands of ISIS fighters still detained as well as their family members. Um, it may well then create an opportunity for the Assad regime, Iran, Russia, to try to push across the Euphrates River uh, into northeastern Syria from the other side. We already may be seeing some reports that that may be going on or may be imminent. Um, and then you have probably the SDF caught, or the Syrian Democratic Forces, the Kurds, caught in this vise between Turkey on the one side, the Assad regime, Russia, and Iran on the other, um, may be pushing them either into the hands uh, or into the arms of the Assad regime or leading to their uh, destruction, mm -hmm. frankly, um, in, a, in a way which is uh, truly tragic. That, in turn, I fear, paves a way for the resurgence of ISIS. Because remember, ISIS didn't start this conflict. ISIS wasn't there at the outset in 2011 when this conflict began. ISIS is in many ways a symptom of the underlying conflict. Uh, and that underlying conflict was, uh, it, it, it sort of grew from the Assad regime's um, inability to sort of justly govern and responsibly govern the country. And so if the Assad regime is in fact back in eastern Syria, that could breathe new life uh, into ISIS or something like ISIS because those grievances, the lack of governance, the brutality and the terror that the regime uses to, to rule is all still there. And so you pull out this one piece um, and the whole edifice of our strategy can crumble. Um, hopefully that's not what happens. Hopefully we've got, you know, sort of smart people now in government who are trying to figure out how do we kind of put our fingers in all those, in all those holes in the dam. Um, but I fear that that's going to be pretty tough to do. Yeah, I'm curious as well about the, the cascade effect and the knock-on effect, like you, like you said, of potentially there being ISIS fighters, especially uh, as it pertains to what's going on in Iraq at the moment, which is sort of a, a new upwelling of protests. And, uh, you know, I personally am not well educated enough on how serious those protests are 
to say, but it seems like there's sufficient instability brewing in Iraq again that the combination of instability in Iraq and Syria are, are a dangerous combination. Well, it, it certainly is a dangerous combination, and I think for many actors in the region, these aren't two separate theaters. They, they regard this all as one theater. ISIS certainly does. And so a resurgence of ISIS in Syria um, could contribute to a resurgence of ISIS in Iraq, for example. Um, and with Iraq's pre-existing problems, um, a lot of which are generated by things like the influence of Iran, which you also see in Syria, um, that could, again, spread this instability. We've seen this in the Middle East before. Instability in one place sort of causes this contagion uh, and spreads to other places. And I think that we need to bear in mind the sort of flip side of all of this, which is if this is the consequence of moving a, a relatively small American force out, think about what that small American force was in fact accomplishing. Um, you had a small number of American troops that managed to rally and really build this partner force of that was tens of thousands, 60,000, 70,000 strong to defeat ISIS and then hold territory. Um, that small number of troops also enabled a, a major air campaign uh, against this terrorist group. And frankly, also was able to hold back this Turkish invasion and hopefully would have in the future helped to create this security mechanism to keep the Turks and the Kurds at peace with one another. The fact that a small number of American troops could do all of that, I think Americans should see as a tremendous success and potentially also a model for how we would want to operate in an area like the Middle East in the future. We've decided, I think, as a society, uh, quite rightly, that we're no longer interested in sending hundreds of thousands of people, uh, of troops, over to do these things ourselves. This is a much better way of doing it, but you have to have the long-term commitment. You can't be impatient. You have to be willing to say, we're willing to keep those troops there for as long as this uh, takes, essentially. If you're not willing to do that, then that requires a much more serious kind of relook at strategy, because... You're not going to, you, you may think that you've defeated ISIS, but ISIS will come back uh, if the conditions that sustained it in the first place are still there. So given the, the change in policy over the past few days here, do you still feel like some of the recommendations that you have in the report are still valid and still potentially applicable to the situation as it's developing on the ground? Well, I would hope, I would hope that um, the report would still get a readership and maybe even more of a readership now because we do try to point out a couple of things which I think unfortunately this episode is illustrated. One is that you know it's not really the American strategy in Syria that's the problem, it's the lack of high-level political commitment to that strategy. Um, and look at the end of the day if you're going to deploy troops out into the field you deserve to give them your full political support. And, and I worry that that just hasn't been forthcoming uh, in this conflict. So whether the president adopts a strategy that we recommend in our report or a different strategy, I think he needs to, and our high, higher level political officials in the administration as well as in Congress, need to throw their full support behind it. You know, this kind of, these sort of abrupt reversals and shifts and hesitation, um, it's very damaging, I think, for the success of any mission, whatever that mission might be. Um, so our report contains, I think, pieces that we, we hope would be the sort of foundation of a good strategy. but even if you choose a different strategy, it has to have that support. The other point we try to make quite clearly is whatever ends you choose, you have to be willing to put in the means to achieve them. Otherwise, you need new ends, right? This is not a radical idea, but one that we seem to, to keep getting wrong, especially in the Middle East. And one thing we've seen in Syria are very ambitious goals, but an unwillingness to invest the resources uh, to achieve those goals. 
we haven't been even willing to spend the stabilization funding that Congress has appropriated in northeastern Syria. That's just not going to work. Either you need to draw back your goals or you need to increase your resources, and we recommend a bit of both. So again, even if sort of events have changed the context, I think a lot of the strategy is still applicable, and certainly those principles are still applicable. Awesome. Well, Mr. Singh, I really appreciate you coming out to talk to us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again.